Hello everyone. Welcome back to Danger on Delmarva. My name is Rhonda Franny Jefferson and thank you for taking some time out to listen today. So today I'd like you to join me as I recall a very turbulent intense morning throughout the eastern shore of Delaware and parts of Maryland taking place in 2005. While the day started as any other it quickly devolved into fear dread and worry as a gunman drove through two states shooting indiscriminately at people pets and objects allison lamont norman and his brother shane DeShields had a difficult childhood and with two defining crimes they decided their fate this podcast reflects my personal interest in true crime disasters and tragedies and more importantly, the exploration of how or why an event occurred to try to understand the reasoning behind the acts and decisions of others. I mean no disrespect to any parties mentioned in the podcast. I have obtained facts for this episode through all publicly available sources from the internet, YouTube, and any other documentaries available. In some cases, personal observations about the area or knowledge about certain areas and events may be discussed. This podcast is produced for informational purposes, and as I have gleaned the information from publicly available sources, I cannot guarantee that everything involving accuracy, completeness, or validity. I or my podcast cannot be held responsible for any errors, misinformation, and time delays i.e. there are further updates after the publication of this podcast. As a warning, each episode may discuss injury, death, emotional and mental health, and may contain triggers regarding various instances. The day started off as any other. People were getting ready for work. Children were waiting outside for the bus. There was a little bit of cool air in the breeze. It was still early spring, so this could be expected on some mornings. Parents and caregivers thought about whether or not the child would need a coat. I wonder if Jamel Weston was thinking about this as he dropped his nephew off for the bus stop at their apartment complex. My day was also starting normally. Sometime between 8 and 8.30, though, my cell phone rang. This was 2005. Cell phones were not as they are now. My phone was quite clunky if I compare it to what I have today. So those times were different. I did not have Bluetooth, but I did have a way to plug in a headset. So that's how I answered the call. It was from a coworker. While I was not best friends with any of my coworkers, we still had a pretty fair relationship. However, I did not expect a call from her this early in the morning. So I answered and she asked where I was, which was a surprise because I wasn't running late or anything. I let her know where I was and she told me to be careful. She said that she had heard someone was shooting up Route 13, which is one of the main thoroughfares through Delaware. She did not know if the shooter was going north or south just that shots were being fired. She told me the location where the shooting that she heard about had occurred 
and this was only about four minutes from my house. At the time of the call, I was sitting in a turn lane off the aforementioned Route 13, and at that point was only about three minutes from the shooting. I wanted to get across Route 13 as quickly as possible, and it seemed like the cars that were in my path were moving at the speed of a snail. As soon as I saw a break in traffic, I went across and felt some relief. Outside of Carvel Gardens Apartments in Laurel, Jamel Weston had just dropped off his nephew to wait for the bus. Though I cannot find it in any currently available articles, I recall at the time hearing that he had gone back to his to get his nephew a jacket, but I've not been able to verify this with any currently available sources. Mr. Weston and his cousin Marcus Cannon were at the apartment Allison Lamont Norman had just dropped off his girlfriend's daughter at. He motioned for Weston and Cannon, and they started over. Norman shot Weston in the face, which ultimately would be fatal. Cannon was shot in the arm and was able to run. Norman was also in a stolen car. Okay, so a lot has changed since 2005, but... You know, my cell phone would be labeled as archaic, so I wouldn't really know more until I was at work. I couldn't keep track of it through any apps or pull over to check the status of anything. So I was on my way to work at a bank with a man with a gun driving through my state, and we didn't know what direction he was going in. Not far from Carville Garden's apartment was for lack of a better term, a very small strip mall. Truly, I've only ever seen it as a furniture store. I can't even tell you if there are any other stores that are steadily there. There are other spaces, but I've never really seen a business last there other than that furniture store. But a newspaper article did describe it as a shopping center. Either description would be generous. But at this time, a 45-year-old man named Anthony White was at that shopping center. Little is really said about him in the articles that I found archived, but it seems like he approached Norman, possibly looking for a ride. He was shot in the stomach and leg. As information is a little harder to find on this, I'm going by some memory. I believe that I read that he had to crawl to try to get help. It was early in the morning, and there weren't many people around. Thankfully, he did receive the help and was in stable condition by the end of the day. As many people were, I was still on my way to work, feeling a little nervous, or a lot, the whole way there. The gunman started to move south. This was the opposite of my direction. Still, I couldn't imagine what the victims and families were going through at that time. Unfortunately, a few years later, I would know, but not knowing that, at this time, I was worried for all of the families involved. Also, at that time, I did have two family members in law enforcement. He was heading in the opposite direction of the cities that they worked, but I still worried about all the people in his path and those who would need to apprehend, apprehend him. Next on Norman's list was the small town of Delmar. 
a town that just this past week in 2021 has experienced tragedy. You wouldn't expect this much violence in a relatively small town. Norman fired his gun indiscriminately, bullets flying as he drove through Del Mar. He did not hit anyone, but a bullet barely missed a sleeping child. I'm a mother now. I think that I would be in shock if I came across that something so dangerous so close to my child. I think that throughout the states of Delaware, and as he was driving south, Maryland, people were attached to TVs, radios, and were refreshing the news online. As if things could not get any worse, he now entered Salisbury, Maryland. Salisbury was much more densely populated by both residents and businesses. Even if one did not live in Salisbury, there was a higher percentage of day traffic in the area. He continued to shoot, not caring what was in his way. But he must have realized that police and eagle-eyed civilians would be looking for his car. As Norman had just finished shooting at people and even animals, he saw a man in a vehicle. This was very close to two elementary schools. Witnesses said that it looked like Norman and the driver argued before Norman shot him. 28-year-old Davindale M. Peters did not make it. You know, just in the few episodes of this podcast that I've done, I've noticed that when more than one person is killed, the names and information about the victims seem to disappear or become harder to find. In the Amico explosion that I covered in the last episode, I had to search for names and never found them listed in an article. In some follow-up remembrances, the name of one or two victims would show up, or possibly there was a retrospective article that they would appear in, but nothing more. In this incident that I'm covering today, we do have the names of many of the victims, but there's not really any information on them, and I had to hunt for those names. At the time, I heard information about them by word of mouth, but in what I'll say is rumor, so I don't want to state it as even a possible fact. I've tried to search for more information, but either it's not accessible or possibly wasn't there in the beginning. The lack of information on the victims is a tragedy in and amongst itself. So in Salisbury, he also shot two women on top of Mr. Peters. One had severe injuries. Again, a name was not provided in most articles, but I did find one that identified the two women as Carla Green and Marsha Henderson. An article did say that one of the gunman's victims that day survived, but was paralyzed. Shortly after this, a citizen called the police to say that they had spotted the gunman. While I can't say for sure whether or not things may or may not have been embellished in the heat of the moment, rumor around Delmarva was that the caller was ducked down between cars as he or she was calling. The gunman was caught after a brief foot chase. I speculate if the fact that the gunman was wearing a bulletproof vest didn't slow him down, but he did not resist as he was apprehended. So how did this happen in Sleepy Delmarva? A gunman who, 
by the way, had missed a court date the previous day. Let's look at that day. He was due in court due to a gunfight outside of a convenience store in Delaware. He had four weapons violations for that. At the time of his arrest after that incident, he had at least three felonies and 15 misdemeanors to his name. And let's be clear, his felonies were not just slightly felonies, just over a limit to be considered a felony instead of a misdemeanor. Prior to his October arrest, Norman was on probation related to a series of arrests dating back to New Year's Eve in 1999. He was charged at those times with trafficking cocaine and other charges. He was sentenced to six months in a prison boot camp and was also placed on probation for two and a half years. Four months after he got out of jail that time, he was arrested for possessing drugs outside of a school. For that particular charge, he was sentenced to eight years in prison, but served three before being released in March of 2004. So just some of my thoughts, some people may say that drugs are a victimless crime. Well, he was outside of a school with drugs and bystanders to drug violence, as well as victims of theft due to drugs are also victims. I do believe though that addiction should be treated as a medical condition, but that does not give someone the right to take another's life. There needs to be accountability because with each shot taken, dozens of lives were impacted, maybe even hundreds. Outside of the victim who dies or who were permanently injured as a result of a crime, there were people left behind, people who waited for word of their loved one's conditions, witnesses who will never forget what happened, first responders who risked all to help their community. So while maybe it could be argued that the actual act of taking a drug is victimless, the aftermath surely is not. So what did the gunman have to say about all this? Well, it was kind of hard to tell at times. He thought he was protecting his daughter from aliens. If he truly did think this, then he does need medical help, and it would be up to doctors to determine what kind of help. But again, it cannot negate the fact that dozens of lives were turned upside down, lives were ended, and there were children who would miss out on memories and the wisdom that their father would provide. Nothing can take the place of that. In terms of the immediate aftermath, including punishment phases, the gunman appeared before a judge as a belligerent defendant. While sometimes defendants really let their attorneys do all of the talking, just responding whether they're pleading not guilty or guilty, this gunman cursed throughout the process. While he had asked for an attorney the previous day, he did not want to hear anything from his attorney on the day of his first hearing. The judge said that he was the most belligerent defendant he had seen in 16 years. As the case moved forward, it was decided that he would first face charges in Delaware. Though the exact specifics were not provided, this was done because of how Delaware justice system works. That was vague, but the decision was made to move him from a Maryland jail to Delaware. 
someone from a Maryland prosecutor's office did mention that there were differences in the way that the two states handled insanity pleas. So this is probably the main factor in why he was moved to Delaware. So these episodes on this podcast are not meant to be political or at the surface discussions about society, but at times they will skirt those issues. In the last episode, I discussed an explosion at an Amico plant where, where people were injured and killed. There was also a large ecological impact. Issues of government oversight or overreach or lack thereof could have played a role in the accident and the aftermath. So many times, even without a direct realization, there will be overlap. To understand more about Allison Lamont Norman, we will need to go back a little. Norman had a half-brother, Shane DeShields. Testimony first delivered in DeShields' trial for murder revealed that both he and Norman had been abused by a man that his mother left them with quite often. Shane is serving a life sentence for a murder of a teenager in April 2003, so about two years prior to this. So first, no matter a person's history of abuse, that does not give them the right to injure or kill someone else. There is no excuse for the actions of either brother But if we are to try to understand why decisions were made by either brother, whether at the specific time of the crime or even earlier where it led to the commission of the crime, we need to take a look at their history. There is no doubt that the trauma of the abuse left both brothers scarred and someone failed them. Without being able to go back in time and see everything, I can really just say someone failed them. The mother may not have known. We don't know. The predator, because that is exactly what he was, may have used threats or shame to convince the children not to report his abuse. The old adage that an ounce of prevention is worth a a pound of cure comes to mind here. Until the past seven or eight years or so, I never really took this to heart or really thought about what it meant. But I do want to set a stage for both this episode as well as future ones to show a cause and effect. So to put this in perspective, let's look at something we deal with every day, or at least many of us do, driving. Over the course of a little over 100 years, there have been innumerable advances in the automotive industry from cars that had to be cranked to be started to cars that almost drive themselves. So please bear with me. I do tend to be very analytical, but these things will connect. So as cities grew and the automobile became more economically feasible to the middle class, there were accidents that people learned by. They may have said, let's have traffic lights to help the flow of traffic so that 20 cars aren't trying to go through the same intersection all at once. Oh, it's not that busy there? Let's use stop signs. Oh, yes, maybe there should be rules about what side of the road a car should drive on. All the way up to fastening seatbelts and cell phone use. The traffic signals and laws about distracted driving tried to prevent 
accidents altogether. The use of safety devices such as seat belts tried to prevent injury if the previous steps failed. These are the ounce of prevention. The cure is when the doctors have to treat the injuries after the prevention either has not worked or was ignored. When it doesn't work, engineers review the accident and investigation and try to make improvements. If they are ignored, well, then a number of people could be hurt with nothing learned from the experience. So as this relates to this episode, the fact that both brothers committed murders can attest to the fact that their background needs to be addressed. I think that with most things, prevention of anything bad is a number one goal. Were there any preventative measures that have been, that could have been taken with these brothers? Were there things that were missed by their caregivers that should have clued them in that they were being abused? If so, what steps were taken? They, did they act up in school or show any red flags that they were being abused? If so, what steps were taken then? Were they taught that abuse in any form is never okay and that if they experience it, to talk to a respected adult? So these again are ways to try to prevent the abuse from happening or to prevent it from happening again. If or when it is known that they were being abused, were they made to feel safe by knowing that the predator could no longer be in contact with them, hopefully by being behind bars for a very long period of time? Did they receive counseling to help them understand that it was not their fault? I'm no social worker or therapist, but as a mother, aunt, cousin, human being, if I hear that anyone has been through this, these would be my first thoughts to get them help, to make them feel safe. Make sure that the children are safe by removing them from the situation if possible, which would be best done by moving the aforementioned predator behind bars. Then make sure that they receive the proper counseling. Beyond that, if none of this was addressed when they were children, did anybody see any red flags as they grew up that they may have needed help? While the initial time period to try to give the brothers counseling may have passed, was there anything else that could have been done? One brother was already in prison for murder. I don't have a list of what, if any, other offenses he committed before the murder, but I would find it hard to believe that he jumped straight from nothing to murder. We have seen that Norman did have a list of arrests, and many were misdemeanors, was there any attempt to get to the root of things and try to build these brothers up rather than let them down? I could not find any actual news articles from Shane DeShield's case, but I did find an appeal that was filed after he was convicted and sentenced. DeShield's was sentenced to life plus 102 years. Through reading the appeal, DeShield's and a co-defendant planned on robbing George Coverdale of drugs. They set up a phony drug buy, attempted to steal the drugs, and when Coverdale also had a gun, DeShield shot him. Again, this is not from an article, but from what I've surmised from the appeal. DeShield did admit to the crime. The history of abuse is not meant as any excuse for what they did. While I've worked on these past few episodes, 
I've come to realize that I've actually known seven murder victims from four different incidents. This does not include others that were lost in the commission of other acts of violence that may not have met the legal definition of murder. If family and friends each took their anger about this out on others, we would be left with about six billion people looking for revenge for something. If we were to excuse what was done, it would be an excuse for each one of their victims and the victims' families to act out as well, and so forth, creating a cycle. Society would break down, so there has to be repercussions. These brothers took lives, the ultimate breakdown in society. But as with so many things, an evaluation of something that went wrong helps prevent repetition in the future. So, Lamont, Allison Lamont Norman, though suffering un, unspeakable trauma in the past, did need to pay for the lives that he took, the memories that would never happen, and the physical and emotional toll on so, so many. Norman's antics in the courtroom also indicated he was either someone who needed access to mental health care that he did not receive earlier, or someone who was trying to manipulate the system. He cursed throughout proceedings. He cried, though not seemingly about the people he killed and hurt. And it got to the point that the judge threatened to muzzle him. Yes, muzzle him. There was not really a doubt that the gunman was just that, the gunman in this crime. But the biggest question would be the mental health aspect. Was he capable of assisting in his own defense? Was he pleading insanity at the time that he committed these crimes? Norman was showing signs of needing help in the days prior to this rampage. No one heard his cry for help, or at least they did not listen to it. There were some reports that, for lack of any other decent way to put this, he was partaking of his own body waste, that he put his head in a toilet, that he was on the floor crying, repeating, help me, help me, and moaning. He also indicated that he wanted revenge for himself and his brother. It does not appear through any of the articles that I found that anyone tried to get him help. In fact, at one point, he asked his on-again, off-again girlfriend for his gun. Even after witnessing this, she gave it to him. The article did not say if she called for help at that time or not, but I would hope that she would have. The description of this incident says that he asked for his handgun, but Norman's mother said he didn't have one. Given gun law requirements, he probably did not legally obtain one, but had it nonetheless. Either way, Mr. Norman is the one that pulled the trigger. He put on a bulletproof vest, protecting himself, and also showing that he was aware of the danger. Some have speculated that he was trying to prove to his family that he was worthy to win them back, or that he was trying to protect them. And while I know that mental health issues still hold a stigma and are not treated in the way that they should, I also feel even more empathy towards all of those who lost a loved one to those injured, left to live the rest of their lives hurt with scars, 
physical and emotional to all of those that felt fear as they saw and heard the sound of bullets to mr peter's wife who had to tell their children that their father was not coming home and there wasn't really any easy way to explain it to them much less give them a good reason through the hurt of these two young men so many more lost something some lost everything they caused an even bigger pain if you will it was felt across delmarva with people fearing for their loved ones until they could get in touch with them or fear because they found out their loved one was in fact a victim so what happened to mr norman initially he was sentenced to death but he later appealed with his biggest issue being that testimony from a doctor should not have been allowed that they could not use the factor that he committed multiple murders because they happened in other states or another state and in that state he he did not meet the definition of murder and here is where i'm going to speculate and think that the difference in maryland and delaware courts lies here that delaware was more strict regarding the insanity plea and also he argued or his attorneys did that executing someone who was not capable of understanding that his actions were criminal were against his constitutional rights it was ruled that while the doctor interviewed him in maryland on behalf of delaware it did meet an independent source rule so that was upheld so did the original argument that he had committed multiple murders but as the state that he committed the other murder in could have ruled that he did not have the mental capacity to understand the criminality of his actions the appellate court did overturn the death penalty after reviewing the decision and speaking with the victim's family members the state of delaware decided not to seek the death penalty again not wanting to put everyone through that anguish again and hopefully things can be learned from this to try to prevent more anguish i think that so many of us take things for granted that we have a roof over our heads that we have loving parents who protect us no matter the cost and we can oftentimes jump to a judgment when someone commits a crime again i'm not in any way saying that an abusive past exonerates these brothers from wrongdoing but maybe others can learn and try to act earlier to be the voice to speak up for those who can't so that they don't grow up to be the person that they despise the most if possibly these brothers had received help earlier they could have found another outlet for their pain and also understand that they were not to blame hopefully that as a society we can learn to act sooner rather than later to prevent rather than treat the symptom i would have also loved to spend more time on the victims of this tragedy but other than their names i really couldn't find much information on them in the current articles at the time there may have been more publicly available sources that provided information about the victims but at this point in time there really wasn't anything 
to go by. While I do want to cover cause and effect, why things occurred and trying to find ways to prevent them, I also want to make sure that those most affected by a particular incident are remembered and that we understand what they went through as a way of remembering and trying to make sure that certain things do not happen again or repeat themselves. So that will end the podcast for today. Thank you for taking the time to listen, and I hope that this story was educational in understanding the long-term effects of abuse and that the best way to prevent some, not all, but some of these happenings is to act early. Don't be afraid to speak up. Don't be afraid to let others know that they can speak up and be supportive of others. I will be recording and posting my next podcast two weeks from now. I hope to have this podcast on a schedule of once every two weeks. Sometimes the research does take a little bit longer, so it could be up to three weeks but I do want to get it on a regular schedule. If you had previously listened to the first episode, I did originally have the name as Danger in Delaware, but as shown in this story, on Delmarva, many of the states interact, and so I thought it was important to expand the scope. However, my email address is remaining the same, so if you have any ideas or suggestions about a case to cover um, that involves the Delmarva Peninsula, please contact me at dangerindelaware at gmail.com. Also, the name of a Facebook page that I have is also Danger on Delmarva. So thank you again, everybody, for listening, and I hope to talk to you again rather soon. Goodbye.